You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Abby Falick. Abby grew up with parents committed to traveling the world and never the usual tourist traps. After high school, she wanted to get close to the issues that she really cared about, but couldn't get into Peace Corps without a college degree. Abby quickly realized there just wasn't a good option for high school graduates to learn and serve abroad, and she knew she'd have to fix that. Ten years ago, Abby started Global Citizen Year to expand access to life-changing global immersion experiences between high school and college. She knew these experiences were uniquely well-suited to unlock courage, shape identity, and develop leadership. Every year, Global Citizen Year places about 150 learners in an international internship. They live with a local family and are part of a regional cohort. The results are transformational and lifelong. Let's listen in as Abby describes her journey and the program that has changed a thousand lives. Abby Felix, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Abby, if you grew up in Berkeley, why'd you go to Stanford? <laughs> yeah, I guess I can never live that one down, huh? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it, it, I am grateful to have had the opportunity to go to Stanford, and I have to say that I still have very deep Berkeley loyalties from having grown up here and, and you, living here. It sounds like you now. kind of put together your own international development degree at Stanford. Exactly. Yep. Um, you You also did a master's there? I did in international comparative education. And when I heard that that existed, I felt like, whoop, that's it. That nails it. Those are the three things I'm interested in. Um, and, you know, the, the, the through line began much earlier for me. I was very fortunate to have opportunities to travel as a kid and grew up with parents who had decided that international exposure was going to be a key part of how they raised me and my two younger siblings. And it had come from their own experience of quitting their jobs in their early 30s and spending down their savings and traveling around the world and recognizing that there is a huge world out there and it's wildly unequal and uh, can be you know, deeply formative for us to come face-to-face um, with how the rest of the world lives and how the rest of the world sees us as a means for really shifting how we see ourselves. And so it was- So by the, mm. by the time you went to Stanford, how many countries had you been in? I have no idea. Didn't didn't like keep track. A but couple dozen? It, yeah. I, I honestly don't know. What I do know is that we never went to the standard places. So I had never been to Europe by the time I got to college, but I had spent time in Southern Africa and Southeast Asia and Central America. Um, and those experiences, as I look back- were among the most formative parts of my education, and they didn't have anything to do with my formal education. And that's really where a lot of the insight that underlies what we do at Global Citizen Year emerged. We'll come back to that. Um, So you you have this great Stanford education. Why do you think you needed to add a um, Harvard MBA to that? Oh, I'm I'm an interesting case here because I'm the first to quote Mark Twain where you know he says don't let your schooling interfere with your education which is my mantra in life and in many ways the the mission for the organization I've built and lead and the and the broader movement that says education extends so far beyond the schooling and so far beyond the institutions and the pedigree and the methodology and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more about that and, and how outdated it all is and, and the opportunities to really reboot it. Was was any part of the Harvard MBA relevant? Does it feel relevant yeah, to you now? Yeah, 
highly. I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent of people with social impact orientation going to business school. And it was the last place in the world as somebody who'd grown up in Berkeley and had worked only in the nonprofit sector, often in at this intersection of education and international development. I mean, I actually didn't know anybody who'd been to business school and um, let alone Harvard Business School. And I there's kind of a consistent through line for me of if I'm going to do something, I want to leave my comfort zone in the most extreme way possible, which was certainly what HBS was for me. And I also didn't go straight. So I spent about five years working in New York between college and then deciding that there was a, a training and skill set and perspective that I could get from returning to a, a formal instructional context. Um, and so I went I, I went to business school on a mission. I, I recently revisited my application essay and I was already quite focused on how I was going to use that education in the service of launching what has become Global Citizen Year. Um, so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. It, it certainly, I, you know, I was a fish out of water, um, challenged my thinking, helped me develop skills and perspectives on a network that have been instrumental. And I think largely just gave me confidence to really be bold and clear about what I was launching. I won the pitch competition at the end of my two years there, which was a great boost of support and felt like, okay, this is no longer just something rattling around in my head that I've been thinking about since I was 18 and desperately wanted to find it, uh, something like Global Citizen Year, but couldn't. But it's actually something that um, I've now prepared myself to lead. And it is my opportunity, privilege, and responsibility to to take this leap and make it happen. And so I've been at it ever since. It It, it is sort of wonderfully ironic that you've got a, a terrific education from the best institutions in the world and that you, I think, most appreciate the formative experiences that uh, in your own life and for other people that often happen outside of a formal setting, right? It's sort of wonderfully ironic. <laughs> yeah. And I, I am very, very aware of how how much privilege I have in carrying those credentials, the doors they've opened, the you know, cold emails I can send from an HBS account that get responses. Um, and, and in part that's, you know, it's, that's part of why I opted into those trainings because I knew that that's, that is a lot of how we still, um, think about, uh, how, how power flows. Um, and so I feel like having had those experiences and being able to carry that credential and now applying it to, what I believe the world needs most um, is really my life's work. And I feel incredibly grateful to get to do both things. Abby, what's the origin story of Global Citizen Year? Well, it goes way back. I, I almost touched on it by describing how my parents you know, were traveling the world in 1978 and, and took a year off to reexamine their lives and their values and priorities. And so by the time I finished high school, and I'd been a good student, but sort of the ex excellent sheep mode, I would say, of, you know, really good at what I was doing, checking the boxes, got into Stanford. But I was very aware that there was something missing in my formal education. And I was hungry to do something outside of the classroom that was going to stretch me emotionally and experientially, that was going to get me proximate to issues that might 
break my heart or blow it open in some way to things I really cared about. I didn't want to just file along and go straight into my freshman year of college just because that's what everybody said was, you know, the path I was supposed to be on. And I, I vividly remember I called the Peace Corps on the phone. I wanted to do something like that. I, I, you know, it was ironic to me that the Peace Corps required me to have a college degree, which I understand, but so they said no. Uh, but the, the only other opportunities available to somebody like me at that transition would have been to do some kind of religious mission. So the Mormons send tens of thousands of young people at that age to, to serve around the world um, or military service, which is also an option at age 18. And so those were really the early, the, the, the rejection for the Peace Corps, my scan of the, the marketplace and recognizing that there wasn't an opportunity for somebody my age to spend a year doing something that wasn't in the service of, of uh, you know, God or the military or, or country, but really in the service of humanity and of learning myself that that didn't exist, um, became a driving passion for me. And, and by the time I got to college and I ended up going straight to college because I couldn't find something like Global Citizen Year, I had the seeds of this idea already germinating. Um, and I had a, a folder on my uh, laptop or desktop or whatever we were using it was called Master Plan. And I think if anybody had looked over my shoulder and actually seen that, I would have been mortified at the time. But now I look back and it's, um, you know, it makes me smile to see that I had this instinct that I was here to build something um, that was creating opportunities for other young people to have transformative experiences in the real world as a formative part of their education. So, What's the mission of Global Citizen Year? Is it is it about exploration? Is it about service? Is it a combination of those? Global Citizen Year uses the power of a deep global immersion between high school and college to unlock curiosity, conviction, and courage in a new generation of leaders. So we recognize that the the intensity and pressure that I felt as I finished high school has only ratcheted up. Uh, you know, it's exponentially more frantic and frazzled and and oriented toward a, you know, a, a, a high school being this high stakes game to get into college and the college admissions boards valuing perfect records rather than authentic exploration. I mean, you can't really try things or follow your curiosity if you're afraid of ever failing. And I think we've set the system up to disincentivize, um, again, creativity and, and, and exploration, which is often the way that you uncover what you're actually passionate about. Um, and so, you know, Global Citizen is a response to the, the clear and urgent need to give young people from all backgrounds the opportunity to step off that treadmill, to realize that it, there's not even really a path there anyway, and to connect with themselves, with a community of peers, and with a context around the world. We talk about experiences uh, of life with alongside the global majority um, in a way that that shapes who you are and, and who you want to become. It lays the foundation for how you're going to approach your higher education. It shapes your values and identity uh, and convictions. And in our experience, it gives you the courage to do the hard thing and to, to stand up for what you believe in. So how does it, how does it work? How long is it? Um, how do you prepare and where do uh, young people go? 
So every year we reach out and recruit the most talented high school graduates we can find from across the country and now around the world. And significantly, you know, in this context of thinking about, uh, you know, getting smarter and new visions for education, we're really innovating on how we think about selecting for talent and selecting for leadership potential. So we don't screen for test scores and grades. They're not a part of our admissions process by design. We recognize that there are, you know, extraordinary young people who, um, where the traditional approach to schooling may not have been a match for them or the way that they were able to best exhibit their their true potential to lead. So we're looking for kids who are curious, who've taken initiative, who've persuaded their peers to follow them, uh, who've started something from scratch. So we take them through a, an application and selection process, which includes interviews and role plays and case studies. Um, and then each year we select a, a cohort um, and invest in a group of young people who represent our society's diversity. So it's a need blind admissions process. And significantly, uh, more than half of our incoming cohort uh, self-identify as, as people of color. And 80% are receiving some level of need-based financial aid. About a third receive a fully funded scholarship from us. And, and those are kids who are low-income, Pell Grant eligible when they get to college. Um, and I think that diversity of the cohort has been really one of the hallmarks of, of what we've done. Um, so, so we're using this transition between high school and college to ignite a sense of purpose. And for the equivalent of an academic year, our fellows, we call them, live with a family in a community in Africa, Latin America, or Asia. Uh, and they work as an apprentice, supporting a local effort that's advancing education, health, sustainability. And our learning model wraps coaching and curriculum around the lived experience. So we're preparing emerging leaders in a way that classroom learning alone cannot. And because our fellows stay longer and go deeper than traditional study abroad or quick travel programs that are often fly by or even the industry that's emerging around volunteerism, because of the, the length and depth of this immersion, our fellows develop insights that shape them and that guide their higher education and equip them to be leaders over the course of their lives. Um, so that's the that's the core fellowship, and then we are using that as a demonstration project. We're partnering with colleges, with companies, with communities around the world, so that someday this becomes the new pathway um, and and a new way of preparing young people to be the leaders that the world needs now. How do you deal with uh, languages and language acquisition? So um, more than 90% of our fellows come back with high proficiency to fluency in the language of their community, which is something we are delighted about. Far too few Americans speak another language. Uh, but we've decided strategically that we're not going to require, we don't have a language requirement on the admissions end. So um, it would skew just toward the you know very small subset of, of well-financed schools where kids are having a good language education. And, and they're Few and far between. So we've decided that we'll take you even if you've not had the language exposure. We partner with Rosetta Stone and Duolingo both so that our fellows are able to, over the summer before they go, uh, do sort of a, a baseline preparation. And then the, the heart of the learning experience, the language learning comes from full immersion, uh, plus tutoring and, and coaching on the ground that we provide. That will be challenging for, uh, for some young people. Um... How, how much choice of the place or type of learning experience do young people get? So we 
ask them to tell us all kinds of things about themselves and what they're looking to get out of the year. We found that sometimes what they think they want is not what they actually want or not what they need, but we do ask. So they typically get their first choice of which country to be in and their first choice of of what sector they're working in, whether it's education, the environment, health, social enterprise. Um, and we've we've created a, we call it our, our matching tool, but it's an online platform. Think of sort of an Airbnb kind of uh, database where our fellows, once they're admitted, come in, they post a profile and they're able to um, sort of scroll through various placement opportunities and select what feels like the best match for them. Do the fellows ever get opportunity to travel in their host uh, country? They do. The emphasis is on really becoming a, an integral part of your family and your community. And so we're sensitive to what happens when you are leaving all the time and you can't make a consistent connection or commitment to the place where you're working. So they're each granted a couple of weeks of, of personal travel, we call it, where, um, and we encourage them to wait until they've got the language down and understand more of the context of the place where they are. But I'll say that it's, um, the whole thing is an interplay between individual experience. So you are living with a family and working each day in a community, typically either on your own or with another fellow in that area. Then you've got a cohort of 10 fellows in your region. And then you've got a number of different regions that would make up the whole country cohort. Um, and each month or so, that whole cohort in, in your region comes together for ongoing training. Um, so they're training seminars that bring the group together. And often those will be hosted in different parts of of the parts of the country to give our fellows exposure to places outside of the community where they're living. Are they uh, fellows ever placed together or everybody has an individual placement? So the placement, the fam, the, the place where they live and work is individual to them. They may have right. a buddy in town um, and the, you know, the closest fellow may also be a, a bus ride away. Um, right. And then they're mm -hmm. in the regional cohort. Exactly. But, um, yeah, that's a neat structure. It feels like just enough support, but um, enough of an individual immersion that they get the full benefit. Um, what, what do you what do you think? What do you know that fellows uh, get out of this experience? It's profound, and it can be hard to measure, but impossible to ignore. I'd say I have the you know, pleasure of spending time with them before they go, welcoming them when they come back, and then following their journeys. We're almost 10 years in, so our oldest alumni are nearly a decade out of the program. And it's just undeniable the way they move through the world, they, the way they, they practice curiosity before judgment, the way they are committed to equity and challenging inequity where they see it so that they can advance opportunity for all. There's an integrity to how they're aligning their life and their education with the, the convictions that they have. And then there's a courage, which is there, uh, there's a willingness to do the hard thing. And I think when you're a high school graduate, you're graduating from high school and you opt to step off that path, there's a muscle that begins to be developed that says, well, A, there is no path and B, there might be real power in being in the driver's seat of my education, yes, and my life. And, and we watch that they're more willing to take risks and uh, uh, sort of reorient around 
around a baseline, again, integrity um, with with what they care about, as opposed to just being swept along and, and doing the next thing because it's because of the peer pressure or the FOMO. Abby, have you, um, I, I'm just curious if you've come to appreciate that the outcomes that you just described appear to become becoming more important to um, to, to young people and and, uh, and society than ever. The, the change that we're going through now, this um, innovation economy, uh, seems to make these outcomes an, an even stronger priority than 10 years ago when you started it. Yeah. And, and we're seeing it in this surge of interest in what we do, where I think we were just a little bit ahead of our time. I'm grateful to some, some I don't know what to call it, but sort of guiding vision or calling that I've been advancing for a long time, but just readying ourselves for this moment where there's a growing recognition that we are not preparing kids well, certainly for college and definitely for the world. And I think there's also a, a piece of this that's particularly pertinent right now in thinking about the, the value and importance of Americans in particular having global experiences. And at a time when we're watching xenophobia and isolationism resurge, what will it take to reintegrate America into a global context? How are we preparing young people to not see it as uh, us and them, but as a as a we? And I don't mean to be kumbaya about that, but we're not, we, we just stand no chance of actually effectively combating the global challenges that we are confronting uh, as humans on a shared earth, whether it's climate change or poverty, inequity, migration. I mean, these trends affect us all and cannot be solved by one country or one perspective alone. Um, and so, so much of what we're doing is building that wave of new leaders who can see and act across sector lines, across disciplines, across lines of difference, across cultural lines as well. Um, I mean, we believe that's that's what the world needs now, and it's such a far cry from what our, our schools are set up to to provide. Abby, I, I, I think a lot of our listeners will find appealing uh, much of what you do and certainly the outcomes that you achieve, and they're probably wondering how they might um, incorporate more of these experiences into secondary and post-secondary learning how we can begin to um, blend these informal learning experiences with uh, with formal. Uh, do, do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we have begun to really think about leadership and, and training as a practice, not an arrival point, not a position, and that it's not exclusive to this transition between high school and college where this kind of transformative learning can occur. We have focused there because we know it's such a sweet spot developmentally where a young person has the maturity to leave home, but they haven't yet fixed their prefrontal cortex and their identity and their values. It's all still in formation. And there's a reason that that cultures and religions and countries around the world have focused on that age, 17, 18, 19, uh, for creating creating rites of passage into young adulthood. Um, so for us, that's really where we've focused our intervention. But a lot of what we're trying to demonstrate by example are opportunities to rethink 
how we teach and how we learn in the K-12 system and then in higher education as well, to start with the end in mind, to step back and say, what are the characteristics that are most essential to thriving and leading in today's world? Um, you know, it's probably curiosity and empathy. It's courage. It's an ability to be innovative. It's the whole set of things that the bots and AI can't do. And yet we're still teaching to tests that robots can already pass. So there's a rethinking around how do we blend emotion, experience, and academic training in new ways that unlock the things that are uniquely human. Uh, Abby, this um, makes me think about our uh, friends at Whittle School and Studios. We've been a design partner for the last couple of years for a global network that's opening schools in China and the U.S. Um, this this month in uh, September 19. And um, they've tried to incorporate experiences that get at these same outcomes by having each campus be super place-based or they use city as classroom where students have the opportunity to connect with a network of global centers of excellence where every student learns at least one other language uh, where they have an opportunity to connect projects to these global centers and spend a week at a at a global center on another campus and then plan a term or two abroad. Um, so uh, just, just a, an interesting uh, systemic design that attempts to get at some of the outcomes that you do in your, um, in your fellowship. I, I do appreciate the addition of the service component that you have that these each of the fellows are working on an impact project. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, I, I, we need all of it. We need, you know, a reinvention of the K-12 that orients around things that are harder to measure, harder to standardize, but ultimately so much more important to do. And, you know, I watch how we've constrained the, the teaching and learning to be, um, things that can be demonstrated on a couple of standardized measures. And I, you know, I also watched at a TED conference a couple of years ago, there was a Japanese engineer who was demonstrating her AI that she had uh, developed to pass the college entrance exam. And so, you know, we're watching as it fills out these multiple choice questions and gets the answers right. But then it blew us all away by responding to the qualitative essay prompt uh, as an AI where it sort of took the question, split it into parts, and then scanned the interwebs to, to write the response. And there was a light bulb moment for me of recognizing that we could tinker for the rest of our days with the current system as it is and and even focus on you know improving standardized test outcomes or equalizing those outcomes but if we're aiming for the wrong thing it, we're wasting our time and energy um and so we really need to to step back and say what do today's kids most need to learn and how are we going to redesign the, the systems around it how could colleges incorporate uh, Global Citizen Year or programs like it? So, and we work both at the high school and the college side. So I'll, I'll start on the high schools. Um, we have launched a network of educators on high schools across the country and now around the world. Uh, where, where we're identifying the educator. Sometimes it's an administrator. Sometimes it's a an AP geography teacher or a Spanish teacher 
a, a teacher who sees the value in sending the right kids to have a global citizen year before they head to college. And so we work closely with them to help them understand what we're looking for, what a, what a, the 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 um, the most qualified applicants uh, exhibit in high school, and then we we work with them to help identify each year on campus the you know really exceptional young person to nominate for global citizen year. On the college side, we have about a dozen formal arrangements with colleges and universities from Notre Dame, Tufts, UNC, Duke, Middlebury, uh, a couple of state schools as well, where um, we have we have relationships that range from these schools just you know having created a, a a page on their admissions website that encourages their applicants or admitted students to consider taking a, a transformative year. We hate the term gap year because it's the wrong metaphor and has all kinds of associations that are different from what we actually stand for. So we've worked with the colleges to really reframe what would this transformative year look like. Um, and then we have more integrated relationships with a set of schools uh, that look like joint admissions shared financial aid, and in some cases, course credit. And I think as I look to the future of, of where this all goes, as, as college comes undone and unbundled, you know, the, the degree and credential and learning come unbundled from the, the four-year campus or classroom experience, I think they're really exciting opportunities to credential and accredit the learning that happens during a global citizen year so that it's not added time and cost, but it's actually an integrated part of your college experience. And, you know, it's not, it's not a winning pitch right now to say, oh, we're going to just make college longer and more expensive. I mean, that makes no sense to anyone. But we could say we're going to make college much more efficient, impactful, and, uh, you know, a higher ROI because we're, we're intervening in a way that helps deliver kids who are on fire about what they want to do with their education. They know their why. And we know that that makes all the difference in how they perform at college and beyond. Uh, so that's that's the bold vision. Uh, Abby, this is a, it's a super exciting program. It's a challenging business model with a, a need blind entrance. That must mean that you, you need to raise a good deal of money. Are you seeking financial partners for the program? Yeah, we always are. And I spend a lot of my time raising money, but it's, it again, just sort of feels like a, an opportunity to invite people to do what they're hoping and trying to do with their philanthropy through our mechanism, which is changing young lives in a really profound way. Um, so our business model looks like a school and we charge tuition to families who can pay. And then there's a sliding scale down to nothing for kids who need financial support. So I'm always focused on raising money for the scholarship fund. And just to give you a sense, I mean, the, how much money we can raise for scholarships is the limiting factor on how many amazing kids we can support each year. So we could have admitted twice the number of really exceptional young people into our incoming cohort um, had we had the scholarship funds to do it. How, how many uh, students in your next cohort? We'll have 150 uh, incoming, and we have, they're joining a cohort of 1,000 alumni from, from our early days. Uh, Abby, where can people find out more about you and Global Citizen Year online? Best place is our website, globalcitizenyear.org, and you'll see links to videos about the program experience, uh, blogs that our fellows keep during their international um, uh, immersion. So they're all posting, whether it's it's uh, photography and video and, and reflections on their experience. Um, well, 
database of, of writing and thought leadership that I'm really focused on right now, which is how beyond the core fellowship, which is both huge and small in the context of making a dent in, in how we're approaching education for a whole generation. How can we use these insights? How, how can we scale the impact, not just by scaling our core fellowship, which we intend to do, but by scaling the, the ideas around new forms of teaching and learning and, and the, the overlooked and transformative possibility of, of reimagining the transition between high school and college. Abby Felix, we, we really appreciate your, uh, your life's mission. This Global Citizen Year is a great program. Uh, I wish every young person could have an experience like this. We'd encourage um, high school and college educators uh, to check out globalcitizenyear.org. Think about uh, how you could nominate a young person for the program, how you could financially support the program, how you could uh, create similar programs where more young people would have access to these kind of experiences. Um, it's transformative work. Uh, Abby, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks to Abby for joining us today. As you can probably agree, the Global Citizen Year program is truly remarkable. We love the blind admissions and her commitment to equity. As Abby said, we live in a world where there is an urgent need for kids of all backgrounds to connect with themselves, their peers, and the context around the world to shape values and identity and build the courage to change the world. I don't know about you, but I definitely wish I could have had that opportunity when I was leaving high school. All right, listeners, that's it for today's show, but be sure to rate and review the podcast so more of your friends and other innovators can find us. And if you haven't already, you know the drill, hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.